0: Welcome to NTD News Today, I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Basketball star Brittany Griner is on her way out of Russia. She was sentenced to nine years in prison. Find out who the U.S. swapped to bring her home. Lawmakers demanding answers about the placement of unaccompanied illegal immigrant children. It's after allegations a government agency is knowingly sending some children to criminals. The Biden administration is now trying to keep Title 42 in place. The border policy allows border agents to deport illegal immigrants quickly. Chicago received thousands of illegal immigrants from Texas over the past few months. How is the sanctuary city handling the situation? NTD spoke with a Chicago alderman to find out. Who decides election rolls, the legislature or the courts? That's the case the Supreme Court is hearing. We bring you analysis on this, including a key point of debate at the High Court. U.S. basketball star Brittany Greiner has been released in a prisoner swap with Russia. President Biden said this morning that she is on her way back to the United States.
1: She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances, Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones and, uh, and she should have been there all along.
0: Greiner was arrested at a Russian airport in February just before the war broke out. Officials found cannabis oil in her luggage. In August, Greiner was sentenced to nine years in prison on charges of drug possession and smuggling. Negotiating her release became complicated as relations soured between Washington and Moscow. Russia exchanged Greiner for Russian citizen Viktor Bout, known as the Merchant of Death. The exchange took place at an airport in the United Arab Emirates. Another U.S. citizen stranded in Russia is former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan. His attorney says talks about a possible swap are continuing. But who is Victor Boot? His name, his life sometimes reads like a far-fetched spy thriller. Here's what we know about him.
2: Who is Victor Bout? The Russian arms dealer the U.S. swapped for imprisoned basketball star Brittany Greiner. The 55-year-old has been dubbed the Merchant of Death and the Sanctions Buster for his ability to get around arms embargoes. For almost two decades, Bout became the world's most notorious arms dealer, selling weapons to rogue states, rebel groups and murderous warlords in Africa, Asia and South America. His notoriety even inspired a Hollywood film starring Nicolas Cage. Here's what else we know about him. Little is known about his origins. Biographies generally agree he was born in 1967 in Dushanbe, then the capital of Soviet Tajikistan. A gifted linguist, he later used his reported command of English, French, Portuguese, Arabic and Persian to build his international arms empire. A stint in the Soviet army followed, where Bout served as a military translator, including in Angola, a country that would later become central to his business. His big breakthrough came in the days after the collapse of the Communist bloc, when he cashed in on a sudden glut of discarded Soviet-era weaponry. In 2007, Douglas Farah and Stephen Braun wrote a biography entitled Merchant of Death, Guns, Planes and the Man Who Makes War Possible. It reported the following details of Bout's shadowy trade. Bout interwove his arms-trafficking empire with a seemingly innocuous logistics business, He appeared to have little in the way of firm ideology, placing business above politics. His clients included rebel groups and militias from Congo to Angola and Liberia. In Afghanistan, he sold guns to Islamist Taliban insurgents and their foes in the pro-Western Northern Alliance. The end only came in 2008, after an elaborate sting operation by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration in Bangkok. There, Bout was arrested by Thai police. After two years of diplomatic wrangling, Bout was extradited to the U.S. where he faced a raft of charges, including conspiracy to support terrorists, conspiracy to kill Americans and money laundering. In 2012, he was convicted and sentenced by a court in Manhattan to 25 years in prison. The Russian state has been keen to get him back ever since.
0: A group of lawmakers is demanding information from HHS over whistleblower allegations. The whistleblower alleges that HHS is sending some unaccompanied illegal immigrant children to criminals. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports.
3: Five Republican senators are voicing concern about the government's placement of unaccompanied minors who entered the U.S. illegally. In a letter to the Department of Health and Human Services, they said, We write concerning an alarming report by a federal employee whistleblower that the HHS is knowingly transferring unaccompanied migrant children in the custody of criminals, including sex traffickers. Government whistleblower Tara Lee Rodas used to help process unaccompanied minors in California. She told Project Veritas in an interview published last week, she believes the government's current child sponsorship program is dangerous for these minors. She said sponsors typically are not U.S. citizens or permanent residents. They have no legal presence in the United States.
4: I think most people don't know. They have no idea that children are going to unrelated people, that children are definitely, we have proof, evidence that they're being recruited and transported. They're then in debt bondage. Project
3: Veritas found one illegal immigrant minor who corroborated Rodas' concerns. The 16-year-old said her sponsor, who claims to be her aunt, was pimping her out to men before she escaped. NTD couldn't independently verify the claims. Rodas said the Biden administration relaxed a lot of the strict vetting for sponsors, putting the focus on speed over safety. She told Project Veritas about one time when she brought up concerns to command center executives. And they said, Tara, I
4: think you need to understand that we only get sued if we keep kids in care too long. We don't get sued by traffickers. Are you clear? We don't get sued by traffickers.
3: The lawmakers want HHS to release information on how it vets sponsors of unaccompanied children. We reached out to HHS for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. Jessica Beatty, NTD News.
0: The Biden administration wants to keep Title 42 in place, which allows border agents to deport illegal immigrants quickly. The administration is appealing a ruling that would do away with the border policy. Here's the story.
5: The Department of Homeland Security on Wednesday said it's appealing a federal judge's ruling that struck down Title 42. Last month, U.S. District Court Judge Emmett Sullivan, an appointee of former President Bill Clinton, ruled that the Biden administration end the Title 42 policy by December 21st. He wrote in his opinion that the policy failed to adequately consider alternatives and the policy did not rationally serve its stated purpose. The judge further stated that the CDC's decision to ignore the harm that the policy may create was arbitrary and capricious. Title 42 was implemented by the CDC at the beginning of the pandemic for public health reasons. It allows border agents to quickly deport illegal immigrants without first providing them the option to request asylum. The CDC maintained the policy under President Joe Biden. The Biden administration said in its Wednesday filing that it would argue on appeal that the CDC's Title 42 policy was lawful and that this court erred in vacating those agency actions. The CDC attempted to terminate the policy in May of this year, but the action was halted by a federal judge in Louisiana. Before the CDC announced its attempt to terminate Title 42, the then White House communications director stated that repealing the policy would result in an influx of people to the border. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has also previously stated that the government was preparing for a possible flood of U.S.-bound immigrants at the southern border if the policy were to be repealed, estimating that there may be up to 18,000 migrants attempting to cross the border every day. In the fiscal year 2022, U.S. Border Patrol expelled around a million illegal immigrants under Title 42, compared to roughly the same number under Title 8, which allows for the deportation of illegal immigrants who do not qualify for asylum.
0: Since Texas first bust illegal immigrants to Chicago a few months ago, over 3,800 have arrived in the city. A Chicago alderman says the city's response is a humanitarian crisis. Let's take a look.
4: We are going to make sure that whoever comes to Chicago, um, that we're going to take care of them. Several months ago, Chicago's
6: Mayor Lori Lightfoot said Chicago is a sanctuary city. But Chicago's 25th Ward Alderman Byron Sigcho Lopez says the city hasn't followed through. What I was hearing from one of the um, refugees that were sharing very...
5: Um very inhumane conditions. There were uh, conditions where they said that in the, in the hotel where they were staying, apparently they, w- they had been found in finding guns, uh, they were finding narcotics.
6: Sigcho Lopez visited 48 illegal immigrants with 60 children in a Chicago suburb and says their conditions are worrisome. They were just left in this location without much communication. There were concerns about food insecurity, especially for infants that were in the location, that many of them could not even play because they, they didn't have adequate clothing. They have not still getting a full medical and mental evaluation. Sigcho Lopez complained that Chicago doesn't have a functional plan to deal with the situation. They have continued to put migrants and refugees in the suburbs, in hotels, that they don't have the proper infrastructure. Despite his frustration, Sigcho Lopez is working with the communities to help wherever they can. We need to put forward a plan on how we can address this humanitarian crisis. So there have been already some um, galleries even that have been repurposed to help some of the refugees. You know, we have people who in our community have started employing some of the refugees. Sigcho Lopez proposed that the city repurpose churches and schools and his ward for housing and improved living conditions for the migrants, but says his plan was ignored. NTD reached out to the mayor's office but received no response by broadcast time. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago.
0: A case about democracy. That's what the Supreme Court is hearing. What's the balance of power between the courts and the legislature when it comes to election laws? We get some analysis on the case involving the redistricting plan by North Carolina lawmakers. Joining us now is Lee Goodman, author of the ALEC Amicus Brief and the Moore v. Harper case. Great speaking with you today, Lee. Oh, thank you, Kevin.
7: It's good to be here.
0: The Supreme Court case on whether state legislatures have the chief authority to regulate elections has big implications for election rules. Can you tell us more about what is at stake here?
7: Well, there, there are two levels of the analysis, Kevin. First is uh, institutionally. Uh, we have a Constitution, and the Constitution provides that the legislatures of each state shall set the time, place, and manner of all federal election rules in their states, and that includes drawing district lines. Um, And further, the Constitution provides that the uh, rules set by the state legislatures are subject to really two checks, one, by laws enacted by Congress itself, and secondly, of course, by the the U.S. constitutional standards. And so at one level, uh, what's at stake is how do we implement that provision of the Constitution? And do we respect the authority granted in the words of the Constitution to the state legislatures? Of course, uh, many people are concerned with what the practical fallout might be. And I contend that it's not as hyperbolic or severe as many people uh, on the other side of this issue contend.
0: And Lee, you talk about the fallout. Democrats allege the state legislature doctrine is a fringe conservative theory. They say it would disadvantage voters and enable partisan gerrymandering. What's your reaction to this?
7: Well, I don't think it's a a fringe theory. It derives from the plain language of the Constitution. And when the founders uh, wrote uh, the Constitution and they had to assign responsibility for setting time, place, and manner of elections to somebody or to some institution, right? That was just, who's going to do it? And so in the language of the Constitution, they said, we're going to rely on the state legislatures because state legislatures are very close to the people. They're a representative body and uh, therefore they're assigned the responsibility. So there's nothing really fringe. Somebody has to design these rules and set these boundaries for districts.
0: Yes, it's a very good point you make. And you talk about the plain language of the Constitution. Is this case a matter of a literal interpretation of the Constitution versus looking at it as a living document?
7: Um, there is that aspect, but but let me uh, highlight for you and your audience that yesterday uh, at the hearing before the Supreme Court, there was almost universal agreement Uh, even among counsel for the North Carolina Supreme Court that there is a point at which a court can cross the line and usurp the authority of the legislature. So it was a given that the central role and the central authority is granted to the legislature. And the real question was, under what circumstances may a state court take that authority and that policymaking role and draw the lines and set the rules itself. And Much of the debate yesterday wasn't over whether or not the primary responsibility resides in the state legislature, but what's the standard for determining usurpation of that role by another branch of state government. And I think there was universal agreement that they can, that is, state courts can impermissibly cross the line. And much of the debate centered on how to draw that line.
0: And thanks for giving us an update on the debate. Lee Goodman, who filed the amicus brief in the Moore v. Harper case, thank you so much for your analysis.
7: It's good to be with you, thank you for having me.
0: Coming up, is TikTok a Trojan horse of the Chinese Communist Party unleashed on unsuspecting Americans? That's what the Indiana Attorney General says, and he's filed two lawsuits. Get the details in just a minute here on NTD News. Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is under investigation by the House Ethics Committee. That's according to a statement from the committee. Wednesday's statement said, quote, The acting chairwoman and acting ranking member of the Committee on Ethics have jointly decided to extend the matter regarding Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The acting chairwoman is Democrat Susan Wild of Pennsylvania, and the ranking member is Republican Michael Guest of Mississippi. They said the Office of Congressional Ethics forwarded its inquiry regarding Ocasio-Cortez this year in June. The Office of Congressional Ethics is a nonpartisan government agency under the House. It's responsible for reviewing allegations of misconduct against House members. The House Ethics Committee didn't specify what the investigation is about, but said more details will come when the committee meets during the next Congress. The committee noted that just because there's an investigation, that doesn't mean a violation has occurred. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, announced on December 5th that it will delay the enforcement of Real ID rules. The rules require Americans to get new ID cards to board airplanes or enter a federal building. The new deadline is now May 2025. Congress approved federal standards for issuing ID cards in 2005, but enforcement has been repeatedly pushed back. In April 2021, DHS postponed the Real ID enforcement deadline until May 2023. It says the new delay addresses the impacts of COVID-19 on the ability to obtain a Real ID driver's license or identification card. The 2005 law was enacted on the 9-11 Commission's recommendation that called for the U.S. government to set standards for sources of identification, such as driver's licenses. A former assistant city attorney and police officer in Atlanta has been charged with defrauding the Paycheck Protection Program out of $7 million. The indictment alleges that 60-year-old Shalita Robertson and co-conspirators submitted fraudulent PPP loan applications for several companies they owned. Robertson allegedly siphoned the loan funds and used them to purchase luxury items like a Rolls Royce, a motorcycle, and jewelry and transferred funds to her co-conspirators and family members. On Tuesday, Robertson was charged with conspiracy to commit wire fraud, wire fraud, and money laundering. If convicted, she faces a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison for each wire fraud charge and a maximum of 10 years for the charge of money laundering. In 2020, Congress passed the largest financial support package in U.S. history. Part of that package included $349 billion in PPP loans. Since its implementation, the program has been open season for multiple fraud schemes. The Pentagon awarded cloud computing contracts worth $9 billion each to Alphabet Inc.'s Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Oracle. The contracts run until 2028. They should provide the Department of Defense with globally available cloud services across all security domains and classification levels. The Pentagon had delayed its decision to award an enterprise-wide contract earlier this year. This deal puts the military more in line with private sector companies, which usually split up their cloud computing work among multiple vendors to avoid being locked into any specific one. And over to the Midwest, Indiana's Attorney General is suing TikTok. He is alleging it inflicts harm on users. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the story. Indiana Attorney
6: General Todd Rokita filed two separate lawsuits against the Chinese social media company The first accuses TikTok of luring children onto the site by claiming it's appropriate for young teens, then exposing them to inappropriate content automatically organized by TikTok's algorithms, content that includes drugs, alcohol use, and nudity. The second lawsuit accuses TikTok of holding onto highly sensitive user data and personal information and leaving that data vulnerable to the Chinese Communist Party. FBI Director Christopher Wray addressed the problem on December 2nd, speaking at the University of Michigan. The idea of entrusting that much data, that much uh, ability to shape content and engage in influence operations, that much access to people's devices, uh, in effect, to that government is something they concern. The lawsuit points out that while TikTok's European privacy policy has been updated to disclose such access, the U.S. policy fails to do so. Rokita says he hopes this pair of lawsuits will stop TikTok's, quote, false, deceptive, and misleading practices which violate Indiana law. Daniel Monahan, NTD News.
0: Texas Governor Greg Abbott yesterday ordered all state agencies to ban TikTok on all government-issued devices. Meanwhile, South Dakota, South Carolina, and Maryland have also all banned the China-owned social media app from government devices. The FBI is offering a $10,000 reward for information about a 40-year-old missing persons case. Maribel Okendo Carrero was nine years old when she was last seen. On December 6, 1982, she left her Florida home to walk to the corner store. She made it there, but then disappeared and was never heard or seen from again. The FBI released an age progression image of what Ocaro Carrero might look like today. She'd be 49 years old. Okendo Carrero was born in Camden, New Jersey. The FBI says she had ties to Puerto Rico, Florida, and New York. The last Boeing 747 airplane has left the company's factory in Everett, Washington. It's a 747-8 freighter set for delivery to Atlas Air in early 2023. The 747 was the world's first twin-aisle airplane. Production began in 1967 and spanned 54 years, during which around 1,500 of them were built. In July 2020, Boeing announced the end of the line would come this year. The 747-8 is the longest commercial aircraft in service. A Cuban official says the United States is blocking some of Cuba's top players from participating in the upcoming World Baseball Classic. Cuba last month asked several players to represent their home country in the Baseball Classic in March 2023. The players in recent years defected from the Caribbean island famed for its baseball talent. Others volunteered to play in the Classic representing Cuba on their own. Cuba's vice foreign minister says the United States has authorized Cuba's participation in the Classic, but has yet to approve U.S.-based Cuban players competing in the event with their home country's team. Cuban state-run media reports that more than 650 Cuban ballplayers have defected to the United States and elsewhere over the past six years. Cuba is expected to play its first match in the Classic in Taiwan on March 8th, Games will also take place in Tokyo and Phoenix, with the championships taking place in Miami on March 21st. And still to come, we talked to a journalist who was imprisoned in China about how forced labor secretly enters Western supply chains. And Mongolia's Prime Minister vows to uncover what happened to hundreds of thousands of tons of missing coal. Protesters demand he reveal the coal thief, who they say sold it to China. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. Dutch officials are planning to enforce new controls on exports of chip-making equipment to China. Bloomberg News reported the agreement could come as soon as next month. This potentially aligns their trade rules with U.S. efforts to restrict Beijing's access to high-end technology. Under pressure from the United States, the Dutch government since 2018 has not allowed the country's largest company, semiconductor equipment maker ASML, to ship its most advanced machines to China. That's because the equipment is considered dual-use with potential military applications. ASML is a key maker of semiconductor equipment worldwide. Its latest annual report shows about 15% of its revenue last year came from China. It's unclear what the new restrictions mean for ASML's sales to China. Dutch statistics office CBS says China is the Netherlands' second largest trade partner after Germany. The Biden administration in early October published a sweeping set of export controls, including a measure to cut China off from certain semiconductor chips made anywhere in the world with U.S. tools. Festive greetings and Christmas cards wish you tidings of comfort and joy, but during the busy winter period, card manufacturers outsourced some production to China, a country known for its forced labor camps. Entities Malcolm Hudson spoke to a former journalist who was imprisoned in one of these camps to find out if there is a darker underbelly to the Christmas card industry.
8: It's the festive season and you're probably getting Christmas cards for your friends and family. While well, they're wishing you a Merry Christmas, If you look at the bottom just over here, it says they're made in China. But given China's extensive track record of human rights violation, it begs the question, who really made these cards? It's widely known that Chinese prisons use prison labour to manufacture goods. To learn more, I spoke to a former journalist and fraud investigator, Peter Humphrey. He spent two years in Chinese prisons from 2013 to 2015
9: on false charges and was subjected to forced labour. Manufacturing labour participation was partly optional for uh, foreign prisoners. It was not optional at all for Chinese prisoners. In all the Chinese cell blocks, everyone was forced to work um, in a factory which was part of the prison. They were making um, packaging components such as you know tags that go on to various products, for example, um, and labelling uh, holders and so forth things like that, quite simple.
8: While he said that prison labour for foreign prisoners was partly optional when he was there, he noted there's been a change under Xi Jinping. Humphrey said Xi has ordered prisons to toughen up on foreign prisoners. They are now forced to work just like Chinese prisoners. When he was there, Humphrey saw goods being made for companies like H&M, Disney, Zara and Logitech.
9: This is commercial stuff where certain officers within the prison go out and win orders from a Chinese company. Um, The prison itself has a commercial entity. In other words, the the prison has its own company through which it transacts this business. Every prison has one. Um, And so they bring in orders and they get a bonus uh, on their pay packet for bringing in these orders. And then the prisoners actually uh, fulfill these orders, and certain officers seem to be deeply involved in this whole process and operation. In
8: 2019, a young girl in London opened up a pack of Christmas cards and found a message from an inmate at Qingpu Prison. It was addressed to Humphrey. He'd spent time with Qingpu
9: Prison too. In the message it says, we are foreign prisoners in Shanghai Qingpu Prison, forced to work against our will. Please help us and notify human rights organisations Use the link to contact Mr. Peter Humphrey at ft.com. And when I saw this card, I, I just I really felt that I recognised the handwriting as one of the African prisoners who I knew. The little
8: girl's Christmas card story helped to highlight China's forced labour problem, Humphrey said. The Chinese prisons get work contracts from different Chinese companies, some of which already have a business relationship with Western companies. He says that's how forced labor secretly enters Western supply chains. And that's
9: why a lot of um, companies that are manufacturing things in China um, are unable to drill right to the bottom of their supply chain through due diligence uh, processes to check whether or not any part of their supply chain involves prison labor. It's really difficult because of all the secrecy, you know, they They can't get inside a Chinese prison to check.
8: NTD reached out to various companies regarding their Christmas card supply chains. A Sainsbury's spokesperson said that many of their cards are made in the UK, that during busy times like Christmas, they work with international partners, and that their suppliers meet high welfare and ethical standards. An M&S spokesperson gave a similar response, adding that they have zero tolerance of forced labour and that they... Do not accept any ingredients or raw materials sourced from Xinjiang. And a John Lewis Partnership spokesperson said, All our suppliers are robustly audited to make sure workers are treated fairly. Other companies didn't respond in time for broadcast. So to summarize, Western companies contract Chinese companies to manufacture goods. These Chinese companies can then subcontract all or parts of the work to different Chinese companies a few layers of subcontracting later, and forced labour may be part of the supply chain, all without the original Western companies even knowing about it. That's not to say every made-in-China product is made with forced labour. Many will be made by legitimate businesses with normal employees. But given how hard it is to verify the source, it raises a serious question. How can we really
0: know? Malcolm Hudson, NTD News London. In Mongolia, the prime minister met with protesters in the capital. He pledges to resolve the country's stolen coal case following three days of demonstrations. Outside the parliament building, protesters voiced outrage and claimed that the government illicitly sold coal to China. The allegations came to light two months ago over stored coal that was lost in the border area with China. The amount missing reached almost 400,000 tons, valued at about 120 million dollars. Mongolian officials allegedly benefited from selling the coal. The protests began over the weekend. Footage shows protesters demanding that the government reveal the coal thieves. Some even hurled objects at the prime minister while he was speaking. The prime minister urged protesters to remain calm. He assured that investigation is reaching its final stage. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, Russian President Vladimir Putin gives his thoughts on the longevity of the war in Ukraine and talks about Russia's nuclear weapons. And Peru has sworn in a new president following days of political unrest. The country's former leader has been arrested following impeachment charges. More shortly here on NTD News Today. The European Defense Agency, or EDA, said today that defense spending topped 200 billion euros for the first time in 2021. That accounts for 1.5 percent of the 26 EDA member states' GDP. Here's EU foreign policy chief Joseph Burrell.
10: Yes, the return of power politics uh, tragically has come uh, sooner than expected. And the return of power politics has escalated into what we are witnessing
0: in our borders, a large-scale open war. Created in 2004, the EDA's main task is to support and facilitate defense cooperation in Europe. All EU countries, apart from Denmark, are members. The EDA said the countries with the highest increases were Italy, Finland, Greece, and Slovenia. Overall defense spending rose 6% from 2020. That's the strongest growth since the region started boosting military spending in 2015 following Russia's annexation of Crimea. EDA members also spent more money on shared purchases, rising to 18% from 11%, though that is still far below the 35% target for joint spending. Russian President Vladimir Putin on Wednesday publicly acknowledged that his army could be fighting in Ukraine for a long time. That's amid significant retreats on the battlefield. In a televised meeting with his Human Rights Council, Putin said achieving results in Ukraine could be a long process, but added that he saw no reason to mobilize additional soldiers, at least not yet.
6: In these conditions, the talk about some additional mobilization efforts makes no sense. There is no need for this, for the state and for the defense
4: ministry.
5: 300,000 reservists were called up in September and October in the country's first mobilization since World War II, causing deep dismay and chaos in Russian society. Putin also used Wednesday's televised event to warn the West that Russia would defend itself with all means at its disposal. The risk of nuclear war is growing, Putin said, adding that Russia saw its arsenal as a means to retaliate, not to strike first.
6: We haven't gone mad. We understand what nuclear weapons are. We have these means and they are more advanced and modern than in any other nuclear country. This is obvious today. It's a fact, but we are not going to swing it like a razor running around the world. But of course, we proceed from the fact that we have got it.
5: Putin has rarely discussed the longevity of the war, although he boasted in July that Russia was just getting started.
0: Russia says its troops took part in tactical exercises in Belarus amid fears that Moscow was pressing its ally to get more involved in the war in Ukraine. Belarus has said it will not enter the conflict, but the Belarusian president has in the past ordered troops to deploy with Russian forces near the Ukrainian border. Video clips posted by the Russian Defense Ministry showed Russian soldiers in snow gear training near tanks in a winter landscape. In a statement, the ministry said this is on the ranges of Belarus's military and that the training is held during the day and at night. In October, Belarus announced a new deployment of 9,000 Russian troops in the country. Ukraine says that Russia and Belarus could be planning new military action together. Peru has just sworn in a new president. This follows political unrest that saw the previous leftist leader arrested after being impeached. He tried to dissolve Congress in an attempt to retain power. Here's NTD's Kostemines with the details.
11: Peruvian lawmakers voted to remove leftist leader Pedro Castillo with an overwhelming majority of 101 votes in favour. Following his impeachment on Wednesday, the public ministry said that Castillo had been detained. He is accused of the crimes of rebellion and conspiracy for breaking the constitutional order. Loud cheers accompanied the result when the legislature called on Vice President Dina Bolarte to take office. She was sworn in Wednesday as president through 2026, making her the country's first female leader. Ularte called for a political truce following months of instability. Castillo earlier tried to initiate a failed attempt to retain power by temporarily shutting down Congress, and launch a government of exception calling for new legislative elections a move that sparked resignations by his ministers, as well as angry accusations from both opposition politicians and his allies that he was attempting a coup, allegations Castillo called slander. pularte called the move an attempted coup. Castillo's removal saw dozens of people in Lima waving Peruvian flags, cheering his downfall. In other parts of the city, protesters clashed with riot police, who fired tear gas at Castillo's supporters. Peru has seen years of political instability, with multiple leaders accused of corruption, frequent impeachment attempts, and presidential terms cut short. cost NTD News.
0: A Guatemalan court sentenced both its former president and his vice president to 16 years in prison each in a graft case years after explosive corruption revelations forced the two out of office and into prison. The pair were found guilty of illicit association and customs fraud, but were acquitted on a charge of illicit enrichment. 72-year-old Otto Perez was president of Guatemala from 2012 to 2015. He spent the last seven years in prison awaiting a verdict in the case. He has denied the charges and said they were without evidence. Ex-Vice President Roxana Baldetti was sentenced to more than 15 years in prison in 2018 in a separate fraud case. Perez and Baldetti were accused of leading a customs fraud network that stole some $3.5 million in state funds during their administration, with both Perez and Baldetti accused by investigators of receiving hefty cuts. Others were also charged in the case. And Honduras has taken a major step in the fight against gangs. The government declared a partial state of emergency in areas of two cities. The decision is part of the president's efforts to crack down on gangs. Under his directive, roughly 1,000 police officers entered each city. In recent months, gangs in these areas have been extorting so-called war taxes from individuals or businesses. Gang members have set fire to buses and killed drivers who didn't pay. Part of the government's emergency measure is controversial and involves suspending some constitutional rights until early January. Authorities say it won't affect the vast majority of Hondurans because it only allows police to arrest suspicious or criminal-linked people without a warrant. Critics say the move undermines the law. In El Salvador, the crackdown on gangs has drawn criticism. The country's longstanding clampdown has led to human rights concerns. That's according to an independent human rights report. The 100-page report was penned by Human Rights Watch and a Salvadoran justice nonprofit. The document claims that at least 86 gang members have died in detention, many of them showing signs of torture. And that implies, quote, state responsibility. The country's militarized attacks on gangs began after March after more than 90 civilians were gunned down in just a single weekend. The country's president then launched a roundup of gang members on a scale never seen before. The report says nearly 60,000 people have been arrested so far, including more than 1,600 children. The report cites repeated abuses of power by both the military and police. El Salvador's president didn't immediately comment on the report. And just ahead, a robot recreates Parthenon marbles from the British Museum in London. Greece repeatedly demands the return of the originals. And a piece by Ludwig von Beethoven is set to be returned to the heirs of its original owners. And for the first time, curators put the score on display. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. to have you back with us. Next, we turn to carved marble slabs from the Parthenon at the British Museum in London. Pressure is mounting for them to be returned to Greece. Part of the solution could be replicas produced by robots. Entities Andrew Thomas has more.
12: This is a replica of one piece of the Parthenon marbles. The British took the world-renowned Greek sculptures in the early 19th century. This horse is pulling the chariot of Selene,
1: the Greek moon goddess. We chose the Selene Horse because it's an object that that most people know already. So it will help them when they see our, our reconstruction of it, since they already have a good idea in their minds of what this thing is supposed to look like. When they see our object, I'm hoping that it will align with their memory of the object. It's
12: part of the series of sculptures also known as the Elgin Marbles. The fragment was part of a 520 foot band that ran around the outer walls of the Parthenon Temple on the Acropolis. Some of the marbles were destroyed, but British diplomat Lord Elgin recovered about half the remaining works in the early 19th century. The British Museum has repeatedly rebuffed Greek demands for their return.
1: They want these things for the same reason that the British treasure the crown jewels, that Americans treasure the Statue of Liberty. It's because this object is part of of their history, it's part of their identity, it's part of the fabric of 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 their history, and they want the objects back for the metaphysical value that they have, not for their appearance.
12: Now, technology may help solve one of the world's thorniest cultural heritage disputes. The Institute for Digital Archeology span used 3D cameras and a giant robot to carve the replica. The marble came from Greece.
2: It's a multi-part process. So the first part of the process is to gather data uh, that enables us to create 3D models of the sculptures. Now, we're doing that from the floor of the gallery, um, in accordance with the visitor guidance from the British Museum.
12: The organization used 3D robotic machining to automatically carve the twin sculpture. It took about a week for the robot to complete the task.
1: This is the pentelic marble version of the uh, of the saline horse. It's a uh, 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 the product of about, I don't know, nine to 10 weeks worth of work in terms of the scanning, in terms of the construction of the 3D model. Then the the robot went to work roughing this thing out over the period of about, I don't know, seven or eight days.
12: After the robot finishes its work, humans take over to finish the piece.
1: Artisans have been working on it for now, I don't know, three weeks, getting it perfect. The The last three to five percent is all hand work, and that's the crucial three to five percent.
12: The creators are in favor of returning the marbles to Greece they encourage the British Museum to use the replicas instead.
1: What I'd like to see personally is a, is a, is a, a phased approach and people have talked about this, whereby some number of sculptures uh, leave perhaps this year and then as people get used to that idea, perhaps more of them the following year. So I think this this they're, 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 the idea of a, a compromise, a partnership, a, 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 a phased approach, all that makes a lot of sense.
12: Successive Greek governments have lobbied for the return of the works. They argue that Elgin illegally sought off the sculptures. The British Museum rejects that stance and has shown no intention of permanently returning the works. They argue that the marbles have more visitors in the UK, and it's now part of British heritage as well. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
0: A unique piece by Beethoven is finally set to return to the heirs of its original owners. Once the richest family in Czechoslovakia, they had to flee to escape the Holocaust. Titi's Andrew Thomas has the details on the long-lost music.
12: This is a movement from String Quartet by Ludwig von Beethoven, with a signature in his own hand. The Moravian Museum in the Czech city of Brno had the manuscript for more than 80 years. For the first time, curators have put the score on display for five days. Then, it'll be handed over to the Petchek family. We display the autograph of the fourth movement of the string quartet in B-flat major, opus 130, by Ludwig van Beethoven, which forms part of the unique quartet, one of Beethoven's later works. The item itself has a fascinating collecting story, stretching from the Vienna owners to the Petrick family. Beethoven died in 1827 and gave the fourth movement to his secretary, Karl Holtz. After the Petchek family obtained the piece, they requested it be sent abroad in March 1939. But the attempt failed as the Nazis occupied Czechoslovakia. Then, the expert from the Moravian Land Museum is called in to verify the authenticity of the autograph. He immediately recognized its veracity, but in order to protect it from the occupiers, he and others involved denied it was authentic they risked their lives, but they managed to file it as unclear, even though it was not. The lie worked, and the Germans allowed the museum to keep the peace. In the U.S., Franz Petschek tried to get the score back, but his efforts were futile amid the post-war division of Europe. Eventually, the museum agreed to a deal this August. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
0: Still to come, this year in New York City, a dollhouse offers kids and collectors a different kind of holiday surprise, a mini Christmas. Details to come on NTD News Today. Just in time for the holidays, Ludacris and Mercedes-Benz have surprised school schoolchildren in Atlanta with more than 500 new pairs of shoes. For me,
10: it's all about giving kids moments that they're gonna remember for the rest of their lives. And I think today is one of those days that just coming here and, and seeing the smiles on their faces and making sure that you know, everything is just given to them and knowing that we're here to help and we're here to encourage them.
0: The rapper and entertainer said he'd remember the day for the rest of his life, too. The car company's holiday giving program, Season to Shine, partnered with nonprofit Shoes That Fit to provide kids with new athletic shoes to attend school. Mercedes also partnered with its brand ambassador, Ludacris, and his foundation, the Ludacris Foundation, to deliver the shoes to the elementary school on Wednesday. Since 1992 Shoes That Fit has provided over two million pairs of brand new shoes and other necessities to children across the United States. One tiny house after another all decked out for Christmas. Kids in New York City have a good spot to visit for the coming holidays and a place to hunt for gifts. Let's take a look.
5: A doll family singing carols and Santa's sleigh loaded with many gifts. This month, the tiny
10: dollhouse store is expecting its largest group of customers for the year. Usually, the holiday season is our busiest. Because we are in New York City, we get customers from all over the world. Anyone who is remotely interested in miniatures finds our shop.
5: Leslie Edelman opened the shop over 30 years ago. What was then a hobby turned into a full-fledged business. Now, he stocks miniatures from more than 500 artists from around the world from one-of-a-kind pieces for collectors to everyday items for children and beginners. Chaz Clark came to find a gift for his four-year-old daughter.
6: An investment in happiness for my daughter. It's a toy and maybe
0: the next generation can use it, but I doubt that we'll be selling it back to anybody.
5: The store imports dollhouses from England, but also has a studio of its own downstairs. The price tags start at $600 for an unpainted house and go all the way up to $4600 for one with lights. The most expensive single piece is this miniature British Regency style table priced at $2,700.
10: Dogs are $9. Some of the cats are three fifty. dollars We have merchandise varying from $3 all the way up.
5: Edelman noticed an increase in demand during the COVID-19 pandemic.
10: I think during the pandemic, when people were locked down, uh, it gave them more of a sense of home and being at home. And so, therefore, I think that the uh, the idea of a dollhouse or a little pastry shop or a whatever uh, became more of a, a realization of their ideas and wanting to do something while they were stuck at home.
5: Definitely a dangerous place. With normalcy largely restored, it's time for collectors and children to spend a miniature Christmas with their dollhouses.
0: Bears are sometimes kept in cages as entertainment in Albanian restaurants. Now the practice may be coming to an end with some help from a charity. This is Mark, one of the last bears living behind bars in an Albanian restaurant, according to the charity Four Paws International. This has been his home for more than 20 years until now. On Wednesday, Mark began his journey to the next phase of his life, the charity's sanctuary for bears in Austria.
2: So Mark um, is born in, eight, in 1998, so he's 24 years old. And s- since he was a little cub, he was uh, closed up here in the in the cage. So this is all he has for over 20 years. So we are very happy that the owner agrees to hand Mark to us, and that we can close the restaurant keeping of bears in Albania.
0: Bears have been caged in Albanian restaurants as a means of entertaining restaurant guests. The restaurant Mark was at changed ownership last year. Its new owners chose to hand him over and plan to dismantle his cage. Mark's handler says he's sad to see the bear go and that customers will miss him. In the coastal town of Vina del Mar in central Chile, metalsmith Angel Nieto rescues bees with local firefighters to protect the environment. Nieto rescues bees that typically build their hives in populated areas of the city and its suburbs. He says he started rescuing the hives after receiving a call from firefighters last year.
10: We basically protect the bees, take care of them, take care of the environment. It's basically that.
0: During the rescues, the volunteer beekeeper does not use traditional gear like gloves or a hat with a protecting net. Instead, he grabs the hives with his bare hands and puts the bees into wooden beehives. Then, he takes the bees to a space built just for them.
10: Here, they are calm, free, you could say. They are not aggressively treated or harmed. They are respected.
0: Scientists say the bee population in Chile is endangered by pesticides. Across the Americas, extreme weather has devastated colonies, threatening harvests, and pushing up the cost of food. Rosemary is a versatile herb that can be used in teas, essential oils, and cooking. Let's find out more about this ancient remedy. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body.
4: Rosemary is one of the world's most popular herbs. It's not only useful in the kitchen and the bathroom. This Mediterranean evergreen is a medicinal powerhouse. Rosemary was used in traditional pharmacopoeia to alleviate ailments. It was used for headaches, stomach aches, menstrual pain, and fatigue. Science has weighed in on rosemary and supports its usefulness as a traditional medicinal. This is due to significant antioxidant, antimicrobial, and anti-inflammatory properties. Let's look at examples of how it can be used. Number one, analgesic. Analgesic substances act to relieve pain, but drug-based analgesics can be toxic to your liver. They may carry dangerous risks of dependency. Herbal analgesics are typically non-toxic. There are also non-habit-forming alternatives that can safely ease pain. Rosemary's analgesic properties identified 11 chemical compounds. These may contribute to its pain-killing quality. Number two, anxiety relief. It's estimated that 264 million people worldwide suffer from anxiety. Aromatherapy is a simple and effective way to de-stress. No herb is better suited to boosting your mood than rosemary. Add a few drops of rosemary essential oil to a diffuser. It's a simple way to soothe stressed nerves throughout the day. Number three, cognition enhancement. If you're prone to senior moments, you aren't alone. In the United States, one in nine adults aged 45 and older have reported symptoms of memory loss. It may be helped by the support of brain-boosting supplements such as rosemary. And number four, antidepressant. Depression is a natural state of mood that some will experience in their lives. If you are averse to long-term drug therapy, why not give rosemary a try? Massage is a holistic healing modality with known therapeutic benefits. Try combining the powerful effects of aromatherapy with a healing touch. You'll get a two-fold boost that has been clinically proven to improve mood. Otherwise, just try a daily cup of rosemary tea.
0: That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.